Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today we're going to explore the story of an amazing woman by the name of Gwen Du. She was a prolific writer and journalist and photographer in the late 1930s and all the way through World War II. She was actually a war correspondent in the Orient and was taken prisoner while in Hong Kong when the Japanese invaded Hong Kong at the very beginning of the war. So it's a fascinating story. Her life is very interesting. And she was born and raised in Albion, Michigan. Michigan, right here in southwest Michigan. So come along with me on this journey. This should be a very fascinating one. So as I mentioned before, Gwen Du was born in Albion in 1903. She grew up in Albion and she went to Albion High School and also went to Albion College and was a member of a sorority there, which will come into play here in a little bit. In her early working career, she started in the publicity department of FTD Florist in 1926. She would have been 24 years old at that time, and she worked there for three years, and she's credited with designing the logo that is still used by FTD Florist today with the uh, depiction of the Mercury Man with the winged feet. During the 1930s, she began writing, and I believe she was pursuing writing probably ever since she graduated college, but during the 1930s, she wrote for several national magazines, and she was the editor of Bridal and Golfer Magazine magazine, which was a national magazine at the time. And there's a story that I was able to find about her life in Albion in 1932. And it's an interesting story. She was riding with one of her sorority sisters that she'd gone to school with and were longtime friends. And they were driving from Albion to Battle Creek to go play golf at the Battle Creek Country Club. And she would have been 29 years old when this happened. Now, the article is about a lawsuit that she ended up filing on her friend because apparently her friend Catherine McAuliffe was driving the car and there was a car accident and Gwen Du sued her and her parents following the accident. Now, I guess the grounds of the lawsuit was that Catherine had permission to use her parents' car. She was driving too fast. Gwen was claiming in the lawsuit that she was telling her friend to slow down, and she didn't, and they took a corner too fast, and they had an accident. Gwen was injured in this accident, and she claimed to have been disfigured in her face. They say that in the trial they showed pictures of Gwen before the accident and after at this point. The, the first filing of the suit occurs in March of 1932, and the accident had happened the prior October. So Gwen was claiming disfigurement. She was suing her friend for $50,000. Now, remember in 1932, that was a very large amount of money. But apparently her friend didn't have the same story. It says in the article here, Miss McAuliffe denies that she went to the country club with her father's consent to use the car. She says that her father had refused her permission to use the car, and she simply went anyways. She further denies that gross negligence was the cause of the accident or that it was caused by driving at an excessive rate of speed. She also denies that Miss Dew warned her of the danger of the accident. In short, Miss McAuliffe maintains that the accident 
was unavoidable. So based on these articles, Gwen and Miss McAuliffe were no longer friends after this incident. And June 1932, the outcome of the lawsuit happens that there was no cause for verdict in the damage suit. So a verdict of no cause for action was reached this morning by the circuit court jury, which heard the $50,000 damage suit of Gwendolyn Dew versus D.M. McAuliffe and Catherine McAuliffe. I guess D.M. McAuliffe was her father. So the jury deliberated for about 35 minutes. Miss Dew had claimed that she suffered permanent facial injuries and a fractured back in an auto accident, which occurred in the Soresco Burlington Road on the afternoon of October 15, 1930. Miss Dew and Miss McAuliffe were driving from Albion to Battle Creek Country Club to play golf. Miss McAuliffe was driving her father's car. The plaintiff claims that she remonstrated with Mrs. McAuliffe concerning the rate of speed with which she was driving and, and warned her of the approaching curve. And they mention in the article pictures of Miss Dew prior to the accident were shown to the jury in order that they might realize the disfigurements which are alleged to have occurred as the result of the accident. So, and then it finally wraps up with Miss McAuliffe and Miss Dew were girlhood chums in Albion and attended Albion High School and Albion College together. They were sorority sisters for two years and the best of friends until this accident occurred. So that's the end of that little story. Now, as far as disfigurement, I don't have any photos of Gwen when she was a young girl to compare to when she was older. I guess if you examine the photos that came out, um, perhaps the right side of her face looks like might be a little different. I don't know. It's hard to tell, but um, she always seems to be favoring the left side in her photographs. So maybe she was subconsciously um, concerned about how she, she looked or something like that. It doesn't appear to me that she had any disfigurement. She was quite a beautiful woman, but uh, not having seen her in person or spoken to her, uh, it's hard to tell. There was no other mention of this in any later stories in her life. They always refer to her as a very beautiful woman. So whatever the damages were, apparently she did overcome it and it wasn't a permanent um condition for her. So let's move on. In 1936, Gwen traveled the world and mostly the Orient and wrote weekly articles of her experiences for the Detroit News, which were read by thousands of persons. So there was an article that I found in the Marshall Evening Chronicle that was published on June 28, 1937, and it describes Gwen after she returned to New York. So here's what the story says. Miss Gwen Du, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. A.H. Du of Albion, who left New York City 18 months ago to quote-unquote right her way around the world, arrived in New York Thursday night, having achieved her ambition, although she had had $50 when she started, Miss Du traveled 35,000 miles and visited 16 countries. In China, she followed Madame Chang Keshek, wife of China's leading general, up the Yangtze River, across country, and finally 4,000 feet up a mountain for an interview. In Japan, she interviewed movie stars of that country. Colonial officials and native princesses were objects of her interviews published in the Detroit newspaper. Returning via Europe, she visited Rome and attended the coronation in London, and she planned to come home on the airship Hindenburg 
and failed to get accommodations for its trip that ended fatally in Lakehurst and got a confirmation for a reservation for a later crossing on the day of the disaster. So she had attempted to get a ticket onto Hindenburg and wasn't able to secure a ticket. Now, the Hindenburg was an airship. It was a dirigible, and it had a disaster on May 6, 1937, at Lakehurst, New Jersey, in a field, and it had struck a pole or something like that, and it exploded, and it killed 36 passengers and crew, and everybody's probably heard at one point of the Hindenburg disaster. And so she was trying to get a ticket and wasn't able to get one, and she bought a ticket on another transatlantic crossing of some kind, maybe on a ship or maybe another airship. So that's kind of an interesting side note there. Uh, Fortunate for her, she never got on that ship. So she did return to the United States, and in 1938, she's mentioned in an article that was published in the Escanaba Daily Press on February 11th, 1938, and it's called Michigan in Washington. And it's a story about Gwen Du over in Washington, and the article... um, is covering a story of her attending the Wall Street Journal party, and she was the speaker for the evening. And they described her as an attractive girl from Albion, who certainly was not in any way connected with politics, but she was asked to speak on the evening at this uh, dinner party for the Wall Street Journal. And here's what they described here. It said, Gwen Du was her name, the girl who went around the world on... A start of $50 and a typewriter. The tales of her adventures appeared in a Detroit newspaper. Like all true gypsies, this dark-haired, lithe girl talks little about where she has been and is absorbed only in where she is going. That is a secret. But her immediate plans call for a trip to California by air. Homesick a few times for Albion and her back-home friends, she freely admits she was especially when she heard the strains of her favorite old college fraternity song, Sweetheart of Sigma Chi, written by a member at Albion College. She heard it in the Old Square in Spain and on the streets of Hong Kong, and also in a nightclub in Gay Paris. She certainly piqued the interest of the newspaper women in Washington. She made them want to steal $50 and pick up their typewriters and set sail. So that was kind of an interesting little take on her speaking, probably very briefly that evening on her adventures around the world. And they probably asked her to say a few words. And this writer decided to cover the story, entitled it Michigan in Washington. So by 1941, she's back in the Orient covering as a international correspondent for the Detroit News, and she decides that she is going to go to Hong Kong. And she arrives there just before the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. She felt like she needed to be in the thick of it because there was rumblings of an invasion of Hong Kong, and she wanted to be there when it happened so she could report on it. And it turns out that she was there, and ultimately she was taken prisoner and stayed six months in a Japanese POW camp. And there's a lot of interesting parts of that story because she would later write a book about her experiences. I'm going to pause my commentary in this podcast and 
present to you a radio program that was aired that describes what she experienced during the invasion of Hong Kong by the Japanese, and then we'll come back and cover more details of her story. So we're going to pause here now. We're going to hear this radio program that was aired in the 1940s following this event in a program called Words of War. And the woman that you're hearing is an actress relaying the story, but the words were written by Gwen Du. Words at War. Tonight, the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the Council on Books in Wartime, brings you another in its series of radio adaptations of important books of this war. Each week, selected episodes are dramatized from some of the most stirring of our war-inspired literature. Tonight, we hear the story of an American newspaper woman who happened to be in Hong Kong on the day the Japanese attacked. The book is Prisoner of the Japs. The author is Gwen Du. Monday, December 8th, 1941, was to have been my last day in Hong Kong. I'd planned to take a plane that evening from the airport the Japanese smashed. I didn't want to leave Hong Kong. Something was going to happen there, and that's why I'd come in the first place, as correspondent for the Detroit News and Newsweek magazine. But that Monday, I was going to leave. No one left. Only those who died. Defenders of Hong Kong were pushed steadily back. The city was squeezed like a nut in the jaws of a nutcracker until the shell of it and the meat of it were mashed. It took the Japs 17 days to capture the Gibraltar of the East. I lived in a hotel, the Repulse Bay Hotel. I was there along with 200 other British and Americans and a small garrison of soldiers. So that's a dramatic presentation put on by the radio program. And they had an actress portraying the voice of Gwen Du as part of the program. They also had other actors playing parts of some of the British soldiers in her account, as well as some actors playing Japanese soldiers and so forth in the radio drama. But at the end of this episode, it was the seventh installment in the Words of War series that was published in... 1943, and this episode aired on August 7th, 1943. But at the end of the dramatic radio portion of it that you just heard, she gave a short interview or testimony about the reason why. And this is actually Gwen Du's voice that you're about to listen to. We present in person the author of Prisoner of the Japs, Gwen Du. Some of us came home. But 150,000 Allied soldiers and civilians are still prisoners of the Japs. Tonight we have tried to tell you what that means. We have forced ourselves to speak of those days so that you may understand Japan. She has taken a million square miles of territory, and we have won back 200 square miles. Perhaps if you can remember what we have said tonight, it will help us to crush Japan's new empire before the friends we had to leave have died. Prisoners of the Japs. So that was just an excerpt from that show called Words of War. 
And I'll put the link in the description of this podcast should you want to go listen to the entire episode. So what she's describing in here is the Japanese troops landing in Hong Kong. And that occurred on December 18th, 1941. And she was subsequently taken as a prisoner of war along with other Americans, Canadians, Latin Americans from all over the Far East area that were in Hong Kong on that day of the invasion. So she states that she was there in the POW camp about six months. Now, of course, during that time in history, and it being the early months of World War II, communication lines and relays of story and information were much slower in getting back to the United States. Newspaper stories coming out in August describing the transport ship arriving in New Jersey. And so they had been apparently almost two months in travel. I believe she got released somewhere in June or maybe early July. And this article that I found in the Marshall Evening Chronicle of August 25th, 1942, the headline reads, Grips Home Arrives at Jersey City, Brings Americans from Japan, Albion Woman on Boat. And the Gripsholm was a Swedish diplomatic exchange ship. So I'm led to believe that the Swedish government had something to do with the negotiation of getting some of the prisoners of war released. And on that ship coming to Jersey City, of the 1,451 POWs that were being returned, which contained Americans, Canadians, Latin Americans from Japan, 20 of them were Michigan residents. And looking at the list of people that were coming back to Michigan, there was one woman from Battle Creek, uh, a man from Muskegon, uh, looks like a woman from Dearborn, and a couple of people from Grand Haven, some people from Jackson, Brighton, and Grand Rapids, and then, of course, Gwen Du from Albion. And the article states that the passengers who arrived on the Gripsholm left Japan in mid-June aboard the Japanese liner Asama Maru, which brought them to the Portuguese East Africa, where they made the exchange with the Western Hemisphere nationals. So that was um, their journey. So they left mid-June and they eventually arrived in late August in Jersey City. So Gwen would begin traveling around the United States, telling her story. She even published a book called Prisoner of the Japs. And she made these tours around the U.S., raising money and encouraging people to buy war bonds and explaining to them the horrific experiences that she observed over the six months in the Japanese prison camp. So there was a newspaper that was published over in the Detroit area called the Monitor Leader. And there was an article they ran on October 28, 1942, that headlines Gwen Du thrills large audience at high school and she tells of experiences at Hong Kong and of Jap prisons. They described her as unemotionally but in starkly vivid terms. Gwen Du, Detroit news reporter recently returned from Japanese internment camps at Hong Kong, last night thrilled over 1,200 Mount Clemens residents at the high school auditorium as she outlined her experiences prior to and after outbreak of war in the Pacific. Miss Du told her attentive audience of her trip to Hawaii and of the great changes she noted upon her return to Tokyo 
as contrasted to the once-friendly attitude of the populace during other trips there. She told of her determination to visit Hong Kong and of her desire to be on hand when war, which appeared imminent, broke out over the Orient. So she had even visited Japan prior to Pearl Harbor. And she'd been in Japan and the Orient traveling around the cities for a number of years. And there's several articles that I went through to gather this material for today's episode. And she tells of her relations with the Japanese prior to and after the war. And there, obviously, the attitude changed towards Americans after Pearl Harbor. So in the talk, she describes that the bombing of Hong Kong began on December 8th, which was about 10 days prior to the actual land invasion. And she described it as a gruesome experience, which ultimately ended in the invasion of Hong Kong. She also went into great detail about, after the invasion started, how the British troops held out with a valiant attempt to defend Hong Kong and protect all of the American, Canadian, and British people that they had in hotels there, especially the civilians of the colony. And how she also went into the brutality of the Japanese troops after the Japs had finally subdued the British and the Canadian troops that had been defending the island. She told of the grim trek on foot from Port Stanley to Kong Kong and of the extreme suffering of the internees through the lack of proper foods and the strict curbs enforced by their conquerors. Miss Dew told of the bodies of unburied British dead where the Japs permitted to lay on the roadsides and of their seemingly indifference to all of those but their own sufferings. And then of course she talked about when the news came out that they were to be transitioned back to America. The American civilians were evacuated. The British were kept as prisoners of war until the end of the war. Miss Dew expressed the swift transition from despair to joy when the word came out that the uh, Americans were going to be sent back home as part of these prisoner exchange. So for the Canadians and the Americans and the few Latin Americans that were there, they were all sent back on the troop transport ship, but the British were kept as POWs. So as I mentioned earlier, she toured the country and traveled around telling the story, and she spoke all over the place. And there's a article I came across in the Salt Lake City Telegram that was published on September 7th, 1943. And in this one, it gives some interesting insight into what she was able to do and take out of Japan that I didn't find mentioned anywhere else. So she was. it says in the article that she had been a Japanese prisoner for six months interned at Hong Kong, and she was a war correspondent for the Detroit News and also Newsweek magazine. And she was also a photographer. So she would not only write the stories, but she would take pictures and send those back home to be published in the newspaper. And she managed to get photos of the time when she was there in Japan and China and Pacific area in the years prior to the war and the outbreak of hostilities in that region. And she managed to smuggle several pictures out of Hong Kong by placing them inside Japanese dolls, which she was told that she was allowed to bring home with her. So she hid 
her film, assuming either her film canisters or the published photographs inside um, these Japanese dolls that she was smuggling home with her. In addition to the photos, she was also successful in placing a list of 3,000 names of the British prisoners inside the dolls and turned over the list to the American Red Cross and the prisoners' families were ultimately notified through her actions. And that's something that you don't find mentioned anywhere else in any of the other news articles. So that's quite an interesting detail. And it's one that I bet not a lot of people knew about. And another interesting thing that came out of this article, which was covering a talk that she gave in Salt Lake City, she said that she held no bitterness towards the Japanese and instead insisted that enemy prisoners that are being held in the U.S. be treated in the manner that they themselves would want to be treated if they themselves were a prisoner of war. So she was an advocate for humanitarian and humane treatment on both sides of the conflict and definitely advocating for that conduct here in the United States with any POWs that were held here, which I thought was quite honorable for her to have taken that position based on her own experiences. Another interesting note to kind of take a step back, she arrived in August 25th or around that time in Jersey City when the ship arrived. But what's interesting to note is her parents didn't get notified that she was safely on the ship until about August 13th. And that showed up in the Marshall Evening Chronicle. So they must have been very worried about the state or whereabouts of their daughter that had probably dropped completely off radar, or maybe they had received some kind of notification that she was in a POW camp, but they weren't sure if she was even going to be on that exchange ship or not until August 13th. So that must have been very trying times for them as well. Now, her time in the prison camp, she describes in several different articles around when she was touring, they would cover what she was saying, and they didn't have any fruit, vegetables, eggs, or anything that I guess was a customary diet here in the U.S. in the 1940s. And they were in a semi-starved condition the whole time that they were there. And she was with 350 other Americans. And when they left, there was 3,000 British citizens that were kept as slaves by the Japanese for the three and a half years of the war. So that's a pretty sad experience for them. Now, what I found interesting, it was very hard looking at old newspapers to try to find some stories that she wrote because she, of course, was a war correspondent and sent articles back. And um, I wasn't successful in finding a lot of her old stories. However, I did find one that was published in September of 1942 called War on China Through Eyes of American Girl. And it was written by Gwen Du. And it was published in New York and, of course, carried around the U.S., and she's got quite a, a, an amazing writing style, and I'm going to read you some of it here. It says, War woke us up with rough, giant fingers in Hong Kong on that historical morning of December 8th, 1941, December 7th in this hemisphere. It shook our lives out on bloody streets and tore our hearts and minds to shreds with ruthless disregard of all humanities. It left us ignominious prisoners in a semi-starved condition in a Japanese concentration camp from which 350 Americans have just returned out of that human bondage, leaving behind 3,000 British slaves 
to hope for the day when the American Navy and Air Force will make them free again. During the two previous nights, 50,000 troops of the Nipponese army moved up to the borders of the new territories. These are a 26-mile stretch on the mainland owned by the British for 50 years, but the Hong Kong populace was not warned of this vital movement. Ammunition, tanks, supplies all took their places for what became one of the most rapid thrusts against the city any war has known. The shadow of a fight to come has hung over the Far East for many years, but there is a great difference between the realities and the expectations of war. Hong Kong itself is on the island of Victoria. Facing it is Kowloon, as much a part of the city as is any suburb. Part of Kowloon stretches the new territory's many rocky peaks, dozens of Chinese villages. Hong Kong has been British-owned for a hundred years and has been long known as the Gibraltar of the Far East. The Japanese were about to test this statement. Then she carries on with a section of the story called Disregarded Menace. We had been having practice blackouts for two weeks, but there had been a few warnings in the wind. But who really at that time expected New York or San Francisco or Honolulu to be bombed. So the people of Hong Kong rested oblivious to the braggings of the Japanese that they would shake Hong Kong off the tree like a rotten plum when they were ready. Suddenly, from the bellies of the ships dropped black streaks of death. They destroyed the clipper in the harbor. They damaged some of the planes on the field, flew low to machine gun the bystanders, they dropped bombs on nearby Kayatak Market filled with the Monday morning crowd of Chinese shoppers. 800 men, women, and children were blown to bits. Thus, the Japs declared war on the British Empire and the Battle of Hong Kong began. And she goes on to tell a lot more details in this article, but she closes out the storyline. We were indeed an island fortress in state of full siege. So that kind of gives you a very graphic and descriptive experience of what she observed and experienced in Hong Kong on the day of the invasion and the weeks that preceded it in Hong Kong. And like any firsthand account of war, it's pretty graphic. And there's an article that ran in the Lawrence Daily Journal World from Lawrence, Kansas, that was covering her story. And this ran in October of 1943. And it gives some interesting insight into Gwen Du and more graphic details of the story. It says it has as a title, News Writers Saw Jap Prison Camps. Miss Gwen Du tells of tortures and cruelty in Far East. Now, her, by this time, her book, Prisoner of the Japs, had become a nationwide bestseller. And this is a year following her return from Japan. And in this article, it says a prisoner in Japan, where she was held for six months in a concentration camp, Miss Du gave a firsthand account of atrocities committed against civilians, as well as military men, and told of the pleasure the captors received from torturing their victims. She spoke of their bayoneting Red Cross doctors in the hospitals and of raping and slaying the nurses, of their cruelty to soldiers whom they shot down and to prisoners 
and of their inhumanity in the treatment of those in concentration camps. Although under a physician's care because of impaired health suffered during her months in camp, Miss Du has set herself the task of telling the American people these things in order that they may understand the seriousness of the Japanese menace. She has appeared in 30 cities in as many days and gives from 10 to 12 talks a day. So she was really making the rounds, even though she was in poor health. And she makes mention of the rapes of nurses in the Red Cross stations. And I have to wonder, because she was a woman in captivity, if that had happened to her, and she just chose not to talk about it. Because there's a lot of mentions in side notes in a lot of these articles that at times she was nervous speaking before reporters, and I bet she was probably afraid someone might go down that line of questioning. It must have been a very traumatic experience for a woman in a Japanese prison camp during that time in history. She describes of all the people that were thrust into the concentration camp where she was housed. They were given no clothing and no sustenance or barely any sustenance to live off of. Now, here's an interesting account at the end of this article that says that Miss Du wears an Army and Navy E-pin given to her as an award. And then it goes on to say that the picture show Behind the Rising Sun, which will be shown here the coming week, has among its characters a newspaper woman whose experiences are based on hers. So there was a movie that they came out with in 1943 called Behind the Rising Sun, which was based on her experiences over in Japan. The movie was directed by Edward Dimitrik in 1943, and you can find the film on YouTube. I was able to locate someone had uploaded a copy of it. Uh, from a Spanish content provider. So you can watch the movie if you want to see it. There was uh, no mention of Gwen Du in the credits. It was just saying that the story was based on true accounts. And so apparently some of her story was included into the storyline in this movie. And I haven't had time to watch it as the time of this podcast, so I would encourage you to do so if you have further interest in that. So Miss Du continued the touring of the United States and was often the face at a lot of bond rallies, and she's credited with having raised over $2 million in war bonds during her time promoting her book and telling her story. And she was a speaker for the U.S. Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, and that was the predecessor to the CIA. Following the war, she was the first female foreign correspondent permitted into Japan to report on the conditions there and the rebuilding efforts of the Japan and also Hong Kong. She would marry U.S. Army Captain James Buchanan in 1948, and he would die five years later. She never remarried, and she never had any children. She would eventually move to Scottsdale, Arizona in her later years, and she would begin a travel series called World Adventure Travel Series in 1957. And she ran that for several years. She would also write a memoir, which she entitled, My God, a Woman. And she wrote another book called MacArthur's Japan. 
Now, I've been trying to find copies of that. They are no longer in print, and I have located a few um, places over on eBay that may have copies, and I may eventually spring for it and try to get a copy of one of her books. I, I wasn't able to find the copy of MacArthur's Japan, but I'm still looking. And both of those books were published in 2007, following her death. She passed away in 1993, and... She was actually born on June 18th, 1903, and she died June 17th, 1993, one day before her 90th birthday, which is quite sad that she didn't make it to age 90. Um, And she died in Scottsdale, Arizona. She is buried at Riverside Cemetery in Albion, Michigan, has a very beautiful headstone marker there next to her parents, Arthur and Jetty Dew. So the Gwen Dew story was quite a fascinating one. And when I was doing my first video out at Riverside Cemetery in Albion, Michigan, she was one of the ones I wanted to cover. And the more that I read of her story, the more fascinated I became. And I did a lot of searching online for photos of her and tracing down stories. And I have a lot of clippings of her and at some point I may just go ahead and put it into a very large YouTube video telling all the different aspects of her tours but she toured around the country I mean she hit 30 different cities according to one article but I found a a whole bunch of cities so she might have continued on that past the time of that article and covered even more and there's a lot of uh, speaking engagements showing up for almost the whole time of World War II Then, of course, she goes back into becoming the war correspondent afterwards on the recovering period in Japan and the Reconstruction era under MacArthur. So she wrote these memoirs that are, they sound fascinating, and I'd love to get my hands on copies of those and read them. But she's just a, a very amazing lady. She came right out of southwest Michigan here, grew up in Albion, and it is quite a tremendous story. And I found a lot of details of the story that I didn't see on find a grave or anything else. And it's like that with any story. You start with a starting point and you go into further research and you uncover more details. She would have been a fascinating woman to have known. And um, it's one of those people that you really wish you'd had a chance to meet and interview when she was alive. So I thought I would share the story of Gwen Du today. She's quite a lady and she should be somebody in Southwest Michigan that we should be very proud of. And the legacy that she gave and the things that she did along the way to bring some peace over in the uh, Orient from her efforts in the war bond raising, but also the um, just the little things that I uncovered about her taking the risk of smuggling out the names of all the British prisoners of war so that their families could be notified that their, their loved one was still alive. You know, that must have been uh, a big risk that she took because if someone had ventured to break open one of the dolls, then she would have uh, probably been sent back to the prison camp herself or maybe even just killed right then. So she took a lot of risks to do that. And of course, she made a lot of efforts to really deliver the message about what was happening over there to people here in the United States so they could really get the picture of what the situation was over there. And um, so I believe that um, not only her own city of Albion, but people living in Michigan should be very proud of Gwen Du and her legacy. So that is going to conclude today's journey through history here exploring the story of Gwen Du. If you've been enjoying this podcast and you're listening on Spotify or Apple 
podcast apps. Take some time to leave a five-star review or any other type of review on there and share it with others. And that helps me get my podcast out there and more people to find out about it. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. There's a way to contact me on there. There's also a way that you can support the work that I'm doing by making a donation on there. And there is a link in the top title bar on the website where you can make a donation of $1 a month or whatever you want to make or just a one-time donation to support the work that I'm doing. Every bit helps with um, the production efforts and I fund this entirely on my own. All the software I use, all of my time and research and energy, and the subscriptions to software and accounts to find information. And um, so every bit of donations really helps to support and uh, offset some of those costs. So if you like this sort of thing and like finding out more about history and like to see this podcast keep going and me reaching out and getting all these great guests that I have on Sundays. So feel free to throw a little support my way if you'd like. Excerpts from the Words at War program were used under the guidance of fair use in accordance with Section 107 of the Copyright Act. All rights and credit go directly to its rightful owners. The clips from the Prisoner of the Japs episode were found on the oldtimeradiodownloads.com website, and I encourage you to go visit that and listen to some of those episodes yourself. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore yet another fascinating tale from Southwest Michigan's past, thank you very much for listening.